Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty. I'm delighted to welcome to the show three distinguished criminologists from the Department of Sociology at the University of Essex. Anna DiRonco, Nigel South, and down the line, Anna Sergi. We're going to be talking today about big issues touching many people, but often somewhat hidden from view. Policing practice, who deems whom uncivil, eco-crimes, eco-justice, movements, policing across borders, and hovering in the shadows, organised crime as well. So welcome, Anna, Nigel and Anna. Um, So paint a picture for us, if you would, for our listeners, a couple of headlines from your criminology research and an early plug um, for the you're all co-authors of the best-selling book criminology a sociological introduction with a snappy title um, but it's all covers all of the issues that we will be covering here so paint a little picture so Anna, Anna Dironko, my turn like so, yeah. hello everyone I'm Anna Dironko from the Department of Sociology my research is on the governance of urban space so who's included who's excluded from public spaces and uh, uh, it you know it's a, most recently it's about the policing of environmental movements and now environmental movements are uh, you know promoting their grievances through different means including social media and stuff like that so that's lovely very very important issues of these times Nigel Uh, I well I've been developing uh, what's called a green criminology for for some time Um, and that partly arose from what I saw as a huge gap in criminology compared to the natural sciences or the humanities or indeed other social sciences but Partly it came from an interest in public health. And there was a famous presidential address by um, President of the American Society of Criminology at the time. And of course, American criminology is very concerned with homicide and violence. But she was pointing out that in the 1990s, particulate pollution killed four times more people than homicide. Why wasn't criminology interested? And so that then led to thinking about... Uh, well, I'd well, already started thinking, you know, why aren't we? And I was developing, it's partly curriculum development, the advantages of starting a new course. You think, what can I teach that nobody else is teaching? And so I developed this idea about a green criminology and other things followed. Splendid. Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. So Anna Sergi, a little bit of a, an overview from your side. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm also a professor of criminology in the Department of Sociology, and I work on organized crime on two main perspectives. One is the mobility of criminal groups, so how um, specifically mafia groups move across borders. And I've been following uh, the Calabrian Mafia, the Ndrangheta, for or across continents, really. Um, and this includes uh, having to deal with problems of migration and ethnicity, labeling of ethnic communities, and so on and so forth. And on the other side is the policing of cross-border um, organized crime. As more specifically, I've been working on ports and uh, massive seaports, and how they play a role or they are exploited um, within uh, drug trade, specifically cocaine. Uh, so that's essentially the two strands of my research, eventually all have in common this idea of cross-border understandings of complex phenomena. Very good. So we've got these kind of organisations you're talking, Anna Duronco, you're talking about kind of uh, the emergence of of movements, eco-justice movements, in order to kind of address um, the nature of resistance. And tell us a little bit about 
the content of your new book, which is Harm and Disorder in Urban Space. Urban space. So this thing about urban space and then kind of how institutions are interacting with each other and what's what are, what are the headlines, what's happening? Well, it's a very nice book, which I hope people would have the time to read. Nigel also contributed um, a chapter to it with also uh, some of his most famous, you know, uh, co-authors, etc., international uh, co-authors. So, so it's a very nice book. It um, really brings in, I mean, this is probably for, for people who are not acquainted with criminology, very abstract, but we explored the idea of urban harm and disorder and also crime and disorder control, crime control in the urban space through the lens of uh, um, sensory. So trying to understand really what is defined as a deviance, a disorder, or, you know, a problem to be resolved by the authorities through the lenses of these senses. So how are the sensing really adding a nuance uh, to our understanding of crime and crime control more, more generally? So it's a, it's a sort of, it's a very nice uh, edited volume with, uh, you know, we asked essentially different authors uh, to explore, to bring in some senses into their approach to urban harm, deviance, uh, crime and crime control. And uh, yeah, that's uh, basically what they did. We had a fantastic chapter on the criminalization of uh, urban music, basically uh, grime and drill in the UK. We had another chapter on uh, uh, you had light and sound in together. So uh, how criminology can really think about urban deviance, urban crime, but also crime control through the lenses of different senses. And this is something uh, that light also... And sound pollution as well yes yeah. pollution yes so we've got sort of objective things happening people doing stuff um things happening to the the urban environment as you're pointing out there nigel and then what we uh, recognize in that what we call it the the calling of some people yes. uncivil as as you've yeah, said that so that then changes the responses that changes the responses but the have. senses are really playing a role into that so for example we uh, i caught with nina Pershak, the other editor a uh, chapter on uh, on smell and that was about the fact that smell sometimes really pushes local authorities to regulate the smell and also punish the people who are too smelly or generate the smell, including like, uh, I don't know, uh, restaurants that are, you know, frying too much and uh, the neighbours are really getting annoyed, etc. This leads to grievances at the local level that are dealt with at some point and also leads to regulation. This is not disorder, but this is just an example of how uh, we... Uh, uh, our definition of the problem, problematic deviance, can also relate to the way we approach, we experience the city from our senses. And here I want to throw the ball to Nigel because the sensory criminology agenda within uh, criminology has been pioneered by him uh, uh, recently, right? So with a very fantastic article. <laughs> yes. Well, a, a, a former PhD student from Essex, who's now at Eastern Kentucky University, and I did an article called Sensory Criminology for the British Journal of Criminology. And it's just very broad and, and trying to uh, remind the reader, scholar or otherwise, just how important the sensory is, but we take it for granted, both in our uh, connection with the urban, but also our connection with nature and the environment. Uh, and at some point today, I want to talk a little bit about work with um, communities in Latin America about that. But mm. Yeah, uh, well, the, 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 um, the context, it's it strikes me is that that urban 
context where where things are changing kind of very rapidly where new technologies are are, are, are available both for for measuring problems but also for producing them as it were um, that that we ha- that you have to kind of find out about stuff and then act upon that to make improvements I mean it, we, we, we said at the top of the show about ideas that improve lives when you start to discover these things what's the next step into into kind of changing them in some way. And I can see a contrast coming up when I come to Anna Sergi in a moment when thinking about organised crime, because that kind of sits outside some of the space that we're talking about here. Examples of, of where things have been improved as a result of our better criminology understanding? Well, uh, it's all about, I think, um, talking about harms and also some of these policies that are defining problems uh, are usually targeting certain people, the urban poor, expelling some people from urban centers that are consumption focused. So basically the improvement there, I don't know if there ever has been an improvement, but it's about exposing the harm that some policies of exclusions are causing on certain people. So saying like, look, maybe you didn't think about the possible outcomes and effects of these policies, but they've actually had a very negative outcome on some people that have the right to be in the city as anyone else and contributing to the debate, to the discussion and to simply live in a particular city. So it's about that exposing really what harmful effects certain policies and practices as well do at the local level. So it goes back in a way, this this strand of thought to uh, the work of one of the most famous uh, criminologists, Globally, who was a professor here at Essex, Stanley Cohen, who wrote a book called Visions of Social Control. And it's really about the subtle uh, intrusion of social control into everyday life, which follows from mass private property, the growth of private sector of, of policing, uh, the, the way in which, if you've ever been to uh, somewhere like Singapore, you see that the, the, the very smart way that crowds and the flow of people are are directed in particular sorts of ways Uh, and so you have from uh, the very uh, volatile policing of of crowds through to the very subtle manipulation of movement that this range of the way that uh, urban life is is changed and and controlled yeah manipulation of behavior as well also through technologies which you raised so there are many different technologies there are some interesting case studies also in the old on the own continent about indeed like technology uh, technologies employed in public spaces in uh, nighttime in the nighttime economy for example to uh, make sure that people behave properly properly for that particular setting so don't you know engage in violent behavior they consume they need to be able to buy drinks for example as as much as they can but not to overdo it to uh, lead to violence etc and they use music they use ambience they use many different things they use movement uh, control of course private security police etc so it's really interesting how space also is being um, re uh, you know engineered also through technologies that are very and many of these spaces are defined as commons in some kind of way, green green commons, streets, gathering places, and yet they're also being invaded in different kinds of ways in these and control mechanisms. And also very often not actually public, but privately yes. owned. Uh, on top of that. Yes, yeah, which, exactly. which gives the, the owner the, the permission to actually say what can be done as part of a commons and what mustn't be done. Right. 
Uh, Anna Sergi, in this space then, there's also, um, as you've been researching for many years, uh, another form of organisation, organised crime in the sense that it's uh, hidden from from kind of view a little bit, um, although that's maybe a question that you might want to address. Tell us a little bit about uh, uh, the Indrangheta and, and the work that you've been doing um, and how that how that kind of... Well, we know it's emerged a long time ago, these kinds of movements, but then how knowledge about them has increased and then, and then kind of actions as well. Uh, I think the best way is to connect to what has been said so far by Anna and Nigel as well, because while they were talking, I was actually um, taking notes. Um, and it is indeed um, in a very poetic sense, also a matter of exclusion and inclusion. So one of the reasons why I got into the research in the Ndrangheta abroad and specifically Australia was because it was so linked with the history of Italians in Australia. And it was linked to their uh, history of exclusion and discrimination and eventually just trying to unpack the narratives of what happens when a community as big as the Italians in Australia, and we can make this argument for many other communities around the world of of migrants, uh, all of a sudden finds itself on one side excluded from the mainstream, let's say, Australianness, actually so, in in the sense that there were policies meant to um, make the Italians feel undesirable, they were the undesirable aliens, and on the other side, uh, as part of this exclusion, you also have uh, a self-inflicted pain, which is the organization, well, the keeping of an organization which is based on um, unlawful codes and very vague um, codes of honors and even more vague um, ideas of brotherhood and, uh, and you know, what's, what's not. So I think it is indeed a matter of um, the we all have this thing in criminology where we believe that all things come together eventually and all arms in the world can come down to essentially power dynamics. So I did find that very much being the case with Ndrangheta. And I think it is also because of this type of studies about uh, how migration links with crime and how migration uh, links with exclusion and therefore with harm that we are able today to also speak about organized crime in the way we are. And on another point, if you'll allow me, um, I think that there is also a reason in uh, on the, the reason why I moved from organized crime studies, specifically on the Ndrangheta's so on a structure, into uh, ports is precisely because of the the space and the idea of the sensorial need to understand inclusion and exclusion in the public space. I don't know um, it, what is the first port you guys think of when you think of a port, and I mean a big port like with containers and cranes and all those. Uh, but to me, that was very much linked to the Ndrangheta in, back in Calabria. It was very much linked to the port of Gioia Tauro, which is one of Italy's uh, biggest ports for transshipment, which was uh, taking off just when I was growing up in the mid-90s. And so to me, it's all together, this idea of a port in the middle of a region which is very poor, and yet it's a global hub. It's one of the most important ports of the southern um, hemisphere, essentially. And still, uh, it's in the middle of a place where no one sees it. 
So it's completely excluded from public perception, even if you pass by it every time you go anywhere in Calabria. So it was very interesting to me to understand how this um, inclusion and exclusion of space can eventually have more than one dynamics. So it is uh, very much the core. So the Port of Gioia Tower is very much the core of the cocaine trade for the Ndrangheta. It's been for decades. Everyone knows that. And yet the port is also the reason why the region has been progressing and becoming a little bit more self-sustained. And yet no one sees the port. The port is completely detached from its territory. It's like it's been dropped there from nowhere. Um, and no, and there, there, there are all those environmental issues around this port that no one seems to be really caring about, which m might be something we might want to look at with my colleagues at some point. But I think there is quite a lot to say there. And uh, by the way, I did learn from my, the sensory methodology that Anna and Nigel pushed forward, because every time I visited a port, I did uh, my walking, um, let's say, methods. I walked around, I sensed things, I brought them down and actually trying to understand whether the, near a port there is noise or whether there is uh, some sense of water coming through. Sometimes there isn't. And uh, what type of sensory experiences you got. So yes, we are all well connected in the wonderful circle of life of criminology. Very that's a Jules Pretty methodology as well. That's, that's, a, that's a method. Well, it struck me. Yes. I do have an example, actually. So I, was walking, yes. I was walking around the, the the port of Grimsby in the north east of England. And it's not a port as the a container port like you've described, it's an old fishing port. But it had all been closed down because the fishing has finished. Um and there are security barriers there. And I walked in and walked and and walked just into the area to explore what it used to be like. It used to employ yeah. you know, ten, fifteen thousand people just on the port. Um and it took the security about three minutes, I think, to come screeching up and to demand the taking away my camera so that I couldn't take pictures of, of broken down old buildings. Yeah. And then it, I just said, well, no, I won't take any pictures but, uh, and got away with it. But there is something about, about then, then there's the exclusion of those who are trying to find out about it in some sort of way, whatever the method is. I mean, that was, that was a kind of walking around, talking to, to people who used to live there and who regretted the decline of it. Um, but there is something about, about those exclusions that... There well, is. that would link to Anna's work yeah. on protest and, and the protesters yeah. trying to find out what's going on. Yeah, and if I can just connect to the methodology. So it's uh, it's really important, I think, that um, qualitative researchers in general are, you know, walking into the places they are researching, talking to people, even just informally. That's really important. But uh, in addition to that, there are really interesting participatory methodologies that are also taking into account the sensory sphere of the participant. So imagine, you know, the community you were mentioning. So the community also has, a, you know, a sensory relationship to an attachment to a certain even emotional one identity, to a certain, an identity exactly idea of social reproduction so all sort of ideas so it's really important that that is captured not only through you know our usual methodologies uh, you know interviewing etc but really by a, a deeper engagement understanding of atmospheres atmospheric attachment entanglements whatever uh, with the space uh, being talked or place being talked about 
And yes, my research with uh, eco-justice movements, I mean, it's a, it could be an example. I've, uh, uh, well, I've, the, my most recent research is really addressing eco-justice movements in Italy. So it's uh, two of them in an Italian city in the north of Italy. And uh, um, basically with them, I've tried to understand whether or not uh, during the pandemic their policing has been intensified, for which reason, why, and sort of trying to map the reason of an, a more intense uh, policing and uh, but with them we'd also have done something different so it's not just the policing bit I have to say it also sorry for you know for everyone who's listening but it's very depressing <laughs> whoever you know criminology is very exciting but it's also quite uh, daunting you know very you know depressing subject especially if you're you know talking about crime control policing can become very depressing but uh, you know doing research with activists has really changed that uh, for me at least so it's really changing because it, it brings in an empowerment, a vision of the future that is completely, you know, positive, very constructive, very different views that are being debated in such communities. They are very, um, you know, upfront. They are very active in fighting against environmental crime, at least the, the movements I, I'm involved with. And uh, so this is really interesting. They have an attachment. So also the emotion, the sensory comes into play because they are fighting as, you know, as other communities for a certain lifestyle, but also for um, to the um, conservation of a certain place, but also against the, its destruction and uh, through many different ways. So, so part of what you're all doing is giving voice to those yes. inequalities, voice to the people who haven't got much voice, um, finding a way to tell those stories in some sort of way. Uh, 1939, Bertolt Brecht, I asked um, in the dark times, will there be singing? And he said, yes, there will be singing about the dark times. So sometimes the dark times need even more of a voice when, when, when things are kind of not working and, and, and difficult. But I, a question struck me. Does, does crime always lead to greater inequality? I mean, we've talked about inequality and exclusion and social change over the last... 40 years of the modern economic neoliberal miracle um, it's quite clear across the world that inequality has grown um, so we know that's a kind of backdrop but w when there are when there are the kinds of crimes the organized crime or the kind of pollution issues or the responses to them do they lead to socially progressive outcomes or do they always lead to regressive ones Anna's smiling. I don't, don't know if she wants and, to. Anna is that, is that? Am I asking kind of criminology 101 kind of questions here? Very possibly. <laughs> Anna. Well, I was smiling because it's a difficult question. <laughs> so, so I guess um, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure whether, so in my um, research, what I always find with organized crime, at least, I'm not sure, uh, I think environmental crime in a certain way can be the same, um, is that there are periods of forgetfulness uh, followed by periods of high panic and then back again into periods of forgetfulness. So most of the time what we think is new and, uh, and progressive is really not. <laughs> and I think that's probably where even today with the organized crime policing, for example, or policy, um, there is always this, this plain catch up um, somehow. So I'm very 
probably pessimistic about the capacity of mankind to learn. Well, so that's a general view on the world that I have. I'm very pessimistic in general, but <laughs> I, I think that more importantly, um, we forgot the value of history most of the time. And I think East criminology that should value history a lot more because within history, we had a lot of criminological analysis, which we you know, can value more. And I can say this definitely for organized crime. Organized crime suffers from a very clear uh, problem, which is the change of names. Name constantly change as if we were talking about different things. And then with new names come new policies and new issues. But then again, the harm at the core and the behaviors that we label as criminal at the core are always the same. So I think in that sense, a little bit more um, so progress really looks backwards to me in that sense. Very interesting. Anna, do you yeah, Well, I mean, I think it's... Uh, thanks, Anna. I think I will uh, draw on what you said a little bit. But what we saw basically in the past uh, decades is that uh, crime has decreased internationally. So these are uh, the criminal statistics, they are telling us that crime is on the on the decrease. Yet, if you hear our politicians and but across, you know, Western countries and uh, uh, our politicians, but also journalists, etc., the way we speak about crime is as if uh, a war is happening here and you know, in our neighborhoods and uh, we really need to tackle crime. And uh, politicians from the left, from the right, all of them across have uh, taken the, the crime uh, topic as one of their main ones. And this also in Europe, etc. It's not just in the UK. It's uh, it's been talked about. Memories very short, also of, of people, not just of uh, academics or politicians or journalists. We don't remember what it was like in the past, but the information about crime is not really correctly given. So if people would be told, okay, yes, we maybe have a problem in some specific areas, but crime in general is really on the decrease. I mean, the approach to crime will be maybe more rational, less emotional, and uh, and also the definition of crime is yeah. uh, very important. So Anna mentioned this, like what is defined as crime? So we usually when we talk about crime, especially here in the UK, I find is Im immediately thinking about street crime, street level criminality. So really, this is something that uh, impacts on us. We are afraid of being mugged, for example, in the street. But really what uh, this is, was also mentioned by uh, Nigel earlier. So really what causes the greatest arms are the, the uh, activities that are hidden, that are maybe not even defined as crime, but really big corporations, air pollution, and this stuff, it's not really. So when we talk talk about crime, this stuff is out of the picture, which it should be right there. Yeah, so we've had a lot of talk uh, about we are all in this together, politicians love to say that, um, and there's a kind of assumption that everyone is equally a victim of crime or whatever. Uh, that's not the case. Um, it's also important, as Anna says, that we don't just focus on crimes legally defined. We also talk from a critical perspective about harms, harms that are done to populations and communities, uh, because the impacts of these are distributed unequally around the world within domestic sphere, but also unequally. And of course, the most obvious uh, division is between the global north and the global south, uh, and the global south has been the victim of multiple injuries not necessarily defined as crime but which were if they were happening in the global north probably would be defined by courts um, 
as cr- criminal uh, and to just take it full circle to Anna Sergey's point about history, of course that is how the dominance of the global north did define crime internationally. Colonialism wasn't a crime, <laughs> but the, many of the things done in its name probably would be viewed as crimes today because we look at, look at things in terms of environmental issues and human rights and so on. And uh, I mean, it could be argued, or could also be argued, has been by some that what we're doing to the very climate that is, uh, yes. you know, a commons that is a benefit to us all, and not just humans, but all living things, is definitely a harm. Um, and could be argued to be also a crime because that is having impacts upon people already and very possibly could change change absolutely everything. Absolutely. So, that, so a lot rests on this kind of sharp edge between between recognition of, of harms and knowledge about them and then defining them in a very particular way that we can act upon them. And we can act before that point, of course, but, but many who are trying to externalise costs would be saying, oh, no, that's not a harm, putting all that black smoke in the air, in the air or pollution in the water um, because that's a very that's a, a strategy to reduce costs but yeah. they're imposed somewhere else yeah yeah so global warming global harm we uh, global warming and climate change we can trace in a way back to the industrial revolution we can also tra- tra- trace it to um, the pattern of exploitation that followed from colonialism um, which led to corporate expansion, corporate exploitation and so on, not defined as, as crimes or harms, um, but which actually, with hindsight, we should, if we're concerned about the survival of the planet, should perhaps have been looking at rather differently, rather more critically. And some things, uh, over time, some things are thought to be safe and then we discover more about them. Compounds, products, interactions um, uh, with, with kind of living things. Um, and so they might look all right at, uh, you know decade a but at decade c we we think we we've no more stuff and we definitely need to act upon it and then we've got a a kind of institutional problem because everyone has been saying for a while well that thing over there it was fine actually mining logging what we're doing to the oceans if they start deep sea mining shortly to uh, go for lithium and other other um, uh, minerals rare, rare yeah well uh, we are going to be seeing knock-on consequences of that but whether that's part of the debate at the moment i really don't see it mm, mm. um if we if i could come back to kind of method as well a little bit um how, how you obtain data and information you talked a bit about this um anna just now um uh, if we're dealing with with situations of of let's say they are the crimes rather than just just the harms as it were the the, the next level as you were saying Nigel um, then interests are being protected the the inequalities are being imposed certain people are suffering and others are fine so by definition I I suspect some of these are difficult areas to work on. Um, as researchers because you're trying to find out stuff and maybe other people are trying to stop you finding out stuff. Yes, here maybe... I I think we need to expose stories and and the two owners have been doing that in different ways. Uh, (coughs) Green criminology is partly about um, culture as well as sensory and as well as organised crime. Uh, And what I've been doing with a colleague uh, from uh, Colombia, David Rodriguez Goyes, is working with four of his research students uh, with four indigenous communities in Colombia to try and get a sense of how um, the, the cosmologies of those communities uh, influence the way that they connect to nature, 
but also uh, make sense of the way that uh, Western society, uh, Colombian government and corporations and so on, have intruded upon their, their territories, their lands. Um, and there are so many stories here about the way that people connect to nature, the way that uh, history has been full of injustice, the way that when a new emergency like COVID erupts, people uh, find their own narratives, their own stories, their own ways of responding, uh, that we really need to devise methodologies um, and, and have the research to say, you know, the, these are forgotten stories, actually, but <laughs> from people who might be forgotten before too long. Uh, and, and yes, some will be disappearing because yeah. of the, those intrusions onto their yeah. their lifeways and yeah. their lands as well. Um, Anna, Sergio, what about the, 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 the method space when thinking about organised crime or other forms of organization um, well i am a bit unorthodox in that sense meaning that i don't always know how to justify my methods in the sense that i am i'm a bit of a trapeze artist kind of an acrobat across <laughs> available methodologies um obviously i'm a qualitative researcher you can't be any other way if you are a critical criminologist of organized crime and um, I tend to learn from other professions as well. So at different times, um, I think my best um, learning curve has been uh, going from uh, behaving uh, as a student, behaving as a journalist, behaving a bit as a policeman, behaving like an intelligence analyst. I've learned a little bit about all of these professions in a way to be able to do my job, which is um, getting as many um, data sources I can get. The problem with organized crime research uh, is that there is no universe of data. You'll never get all the data that is out there. Um, it's impossible. There, you're never going to get to a point where you feel satisfied. Oh, I can't learn anything more. Um, so it's uh, there is always some voice missing, including the one of the perpetrators, which um, poses ethical issues for researchers. Um, and especially, you know, you need to justify all of your choices if you're going to talk to perpetrators, which is something very interesting to do, but also very problematic. So I think uh, that's um, in my in my research. Uh, I've drawn from every single piece uh, of methodology I could in, I could find, including, uh, and I wrote this in an article last year, uh, stumbling upon uh, methodologies I wasn't prepared for and trying to embrace it as I went. I went to Australia to do qualitative interviews uh, with law enforcement. Uh, I found myself doing some sort of ethnographic, stumbling upon ethnographic work, uh, which I wasn't prepared for. I made mistake. I owned up to my mistake. <laughs> and now I'm ready to go back and do more ethnographic work um, without those mistakes, if that makes sense. So I think it, it takes a lot of self-reflection to do research in my area, um, but also more than self-reflection, just, you know, on the one end, uh, embracing bias and embracing weaknesses of us as a researchers, we are not neutral. And on the on the other hand, to be to remember the first rule that we tell our students: everything is data, everything. So when you are in a new context and or in a context that you don't know, or you're looking at uh, in a new way. 
everything is data. So organized crime research in Australia for me or imports for that matter has been everything from the space to the senses, to people talking in churches, to even tombstones. I've learned more from cemeteries in Australia about Italian migrations than from national archives. So yeah, that's probably everything is data is my Line. All, all, all things are connected, aren't they, in this yeah. sense? I mean, you've got social issues, you've got institutional ones, you've got economic ones, you've got ecological ones coming yeah. together. Um, and you were saying, Anna, about kind of eco-justice movements. Mm-hmm. If you're working with them, then this the, it's, it's easier, it strikes me, it's easier when one has a definition of a particular um, uh, group that there is a thing called organised crime. They sound like the baddies. I mean, they kind of, you know, we kind of agree with that. But but when you've got eco-justice movements or groups trying to organise to protect like ways of living, as you were saying, Nigel, in Colombia with indigenous groups or ways of living in, in cities in northern Italy, um, uh, they're saying we're on the side of the right, correct, the, 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 the good, as it were, but there might be others in policing, in justice movements, in policy, who might say, oh, no, no. We disagree with that. Exactly. So if I can go back quickly to the new methodologies that Anna and Nigel were talking about. So, um, I mean, it's really important that, you know, criminologists, but in general, social scientists, qualitative ones especially, engage with new methodologies. So I just want to mention a study that Nigel and I uh, co-authored with one of our um, colleagues at the department, James Allen Robertson, uh, who's a computational social scientist. So what we did to make, you know, to uh, essentially... um, let people, you know, voice the concerns of uh, eco-justice movements is that we um, essentially capture some tweets. So we did a study on Twitter and uh, uh, focused essentially on the grievances and on the definition of environmental harm of a particular uh, Italian movement in the south of Italy. So that was another way we used to essentially uh, expose this group, which was uh, very much silenced and criminalized in Italy. So we allowed the so, you know, through social media, social media is really a really a good platform for um, you know activists to, to uh, raise their grievances and uh, make themselves be heard, especially when they are not in the in the national you know system or international system. And it's really interesting. I mean, we can really uh, you know partner up with other disciplines and uh, you know use different methodologies uh, to to be able to hear their voices and. That's a new medium for the articulation of protest or concern that's not dependent on the physical gathering in the town square where the police are or private security are. So it's it's an interesting further avenue. Yeah, which which is also subject to some kind of um, reaction, but also potentially to censorship, a lot of discussion over that. You know, we can see where where one wouldn't want... Well, you can see troubling material on social media, but then in other other areas, it depends who calls it that. Yeah. Just as you were saying, Anna, it depends who deems others as uncivil. Yes. The deemers and the deemed um, uh, need to be defined in yes. this kind of way. Uh, could I just... Uh, let's let's kind of finish a little bit on, on what may be a difficult area, but I touched upon it earlier, about kind of what constitutes improvement. You know, where where do the things that you've been working on um, using these wide range of methods of understanding change, um, uh, of understanding the dispossessed and the, the, the those who have suffered most most, where 
can we define something that we might call improvement for those who have been um, at the wrong end of social exclusion and inequality? Um, so it's a kind of normative question, but it's, it's you know, what would you say? Where have the ideas led to kind of good stuff, in a sense? I mean, obviously, by definition, finding out more, I think, is a good thing on its own. But have we seen kind of shifts of policy, shifts of ways of thinking that you would you would particularly point to? Anna, Sergi, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I, and, think and I know you said, well, it's been good. You know, mm-hmm. actually, it's a bit depressing because things haven't changed for, you know, <laughs> hundreds of years. And I kind of get that bit. Um, absolutely. Um, well, uh, I think what I've learned from my um, impact engagement uh, with my participants, uh, which I've done a lot of, um, is to be very clear what you want to achieve. Uh, And in my case, what I wanted to achieve specifically with law enforcement, so let's stick with law enforcement and organized crime, the way law enforcement looks at organized crime, was to have them stop as institutions, think of organized crime having agency. Think of it as, uh, I don't know, the the mafia does this, the Ndrangheta thinks that, the Ndrangheta strategizes, the Ndrangheta infiltrates, or organized crime, I don't know, prides on the vulnerable. So this agency and intentionality attributed to organized crime completely, how can I put it, Uh, completely takes away uh, all that has been researched on organized crime. And it might seem something stupid, but it's really, really important because that the moment in which law enforcement does that, uh, it takes away the complexity of organized crime. It unifies it into one single phenomena with agency. There is no such a thing as agency of organized crime. And I achieved that partially, more more or less, at least when it comes to the Ndrangheta, I worked a lot with the Australian Federal Police on this in my previous research, which you know embedded them from the start in the project and to try and di- dissect how what it means, what's uh, left when you don't do that. What is left for law enforcement? How, do, how can they speak? So you also have to offer an alternative in a way. And I think we manage. We manage to pluralize the phenomena. We manage to understand the, dif- the intergenerational issues within the phenomena, the phenomenon. Um, and I think that kind of slowly uh, calls for improvement. But maybe that's the only way I can be hopeful, no, you know, it. to be sort of useful. That's very. Life. I mean, that's very good. It's, don't simplify these things. Don't go into simple binary uh, definitions of one thing or another thing. It is more complex, I and mean, it's clearly the case in green criminology, um, Nigel. That to, to, it is complex. There and is it's you know, complex, a, and the uh, global growth economy is entirely dependent on actually causing environmental crimes and harms. Uh, there is, of course, uh, response from to some extent governments, criminal justice agencies, uh, and international and national law. Um, there's a lot of campaigning, gathered pace to call for an international crime of ecocide, uh, to join uh, the other crimes against humanity, part of the Rome Statute, uh, and call for something like prosecution by the International Crimes Committee or criminal courts or the um, an international environmental court. Um, whether we'll see any movement in this direction is certainly open to debate. And I think one of the most interesting things is psychologists will tell you is that uh, you really need public opinion as well as political opinion behind change and when times are good public opinion will move in the direction of saving 
the planet or whatever, when times are bad, public opinion will move in the other direction. Uh, and that's unfortunate if we really want to see change moving at any pace. Anna Duronko. Well, difficult question, but uh, I think in my own research, if I can talk about it, it's uh, it's about, so I've, lot, uh, I've worked a lot with uh, local communities, local authorities, and in one, for example, in one of my you know, recent piece of research, I um, I focused on policies and practices on sex work in uh, at the local level. What I said, I mean, I did a lot of uh, engagement with local authorities, uh, essentially flagging, you know, some of your policies may uh, need reconsideration because of their harmful effects on sex workers. But as you can imagine, it's a very politicized uh, topic, so it's uh, not really, uh, not really easy to make an impact. But it's important, I think, in general, for critical criminologists to, to just, you know, give visibility to the grievances of the people whose voices are not heard and, uh, uh, you know, problematize, really contribute to the debate, say, like, look, I understand where you come from. You maybe want to go- do good because also in the sex work area, some of the policies really are, I mean, uh, trying, for example, to, um, um, you know, safeguard people, or, you know, to protect or even save um, women, especially women who are to be are deemed a victim of uh, human trafficking sex uh, um, sex exploitation and so on and so forth but uh, the, yeah fine so it come it may come from a good space but uh, the the effects uh, may be difficult I mean may be very harmful on certain people so uh, so our job is that really saying like hey there are some nuances here like Anna was saying like maybe you want to think about what you define of organized crime or what is the what you're really trying to do with these policies because it may have side effects on other people and so on and so forth and or you're just very much thinking that everyone is a victim and that's it and if they are not victims they are really offenders that you need to tackle on so it's just about that and on the other side also making visible the voices of of those who are not so visible in the public debate. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thanks very much indeed to Anna Sergi, Anna Duronco, Nigel South, uh, authors of uh, books on criminology, Nigel on green criminology recently, Anna Duronco, Harm and Disorder in Urban Space, Anna Sergi, Chasing the Mafia, and Rukita. Um, so thank you very much indeed for your wise words on these subjects today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can. Thank you.